This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 680, flashback to Daredevil, The Ultimate Collection by Brian Michael Bendis and Alex Malev, book one. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 680, as we get closer and closer to episode 700. Uh, today is a flashback episode, taking a look at the Daredevil Ultimate Collection by Brian Michael Bendis and Alex Malev, uh, book one. Specifically, really, what I wanted to talk about uh, was not so much every issue in this volume, but some issues in particular, uh, just with regards to how it kind of cross-sects with my uh, my comic book reading history in my own life. Um, so I remember going back sometime in high school. So I would have been in high school from, I believe, 97 to 2002. Uh, so I had five years of high school because back then uh, in uh, in Ontario, we had something called, uh, I, can't, I actually can't remember what the acronym means, but my wife would definitely, and she would make fun of me if she remembered that I don't know. Uh, it was called OAC, or grade 13, basically. And uh, so I had five years in high school. And in that time, I remember I, I bought a couple trades. You got to remember there weren't a lot of trade paperbacks back in the day. And I remember getting the Daredevil Visionaries by uh, Frank Miller. Uh, book two and three. Uh, for years, book one evaded me. Uh, I just could not get my hands on it. And when I finally did, it was okay. But it wasn't like it was the stuff that he was writing himself. It was. It wasn't part of the the grander narrative that he really was putting forth in volumes two and three. Anyways, I liked those books. I read. I think Born Again. Um, and then so flash forward. I guess I. I mean I can't remember. Well, I should really know better. But uh, when. Uh, Brian Michael Bendis came aboard Daredevil, I was not reading the book. Um, I don't know if I was really even going to comic book stores on the regular at that point. Um, I think it was in and around that time. My comic book store, I guess, had closed around 2001 or so. Uh, I think I was transitioning to you know, be able to go and get comics on my own, but I wasn't picking up Daredevil. Um, I definitely liked Daredevil. I don't think I'd read Guardian Devil yet, or this is in and around the time where I might have started uh, going back and read it. But I know that when that first happened, I was did not have a regular comic book store. I was buying on the newsstands. I don't remember ever seeing Daredevil. Um, but I was working at a, at a, a grocery store, well, sorry, a drugstore called Shoppers Drug Mart. Uh, if you're in Canada, you know what, what that's like. Um, so I was working at Shoppers Drug Mart, and they had only a few comics were ever on their shelves. They didn't really carry comics. To be honest, most places were obviously starting to have less and less comics, but they definitely had a few here and there. And then they had Daredevil. And I remember being able to read the beginning of Brian Michael Bendis' run on Daredevil uh, in, in you know, kind of sporadic releases. Um, but I didn't have my own copies, and I, I kind of read them as I was working there. And then I was like, holy shit, this is really good. Ended up buying Underboss, the first trade paperback, and then from then onwards, bought singles. And that has pretty much continued forever. Uh, Daredevil's a character that just, you know, I, I really enjoy. I don't really buy the singles of, of him anymore. It's been a year. I think I dropped, at the beginning of the Mark Wade run, I stopped buying singles. But I said, you know, I'll go back and I'll buy it digitally. And then I'll buy it digitally going forward. And that's basically what I did. And I also have it on in trade paperbacks on, on my shelf as well. So Daredevil's definitely meant a lot to me. And when I eventually sell big parts of my collection, I'm going to keep my Daredevil books. Uh, I just love Daredevil. Um, the Epic Collections, when they started, you know, I basically said to myself, well, I'm going to buy Amazing Spider-Man because he's kind of my character. He's the one I'm, I'm going to want to read everything for. Uh, a lot of these other characters, I don't really feel the same way. I'm, I fell out of love 
with Iron Man. Uh, I used to really love Iron Man uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, then I kind of jumped off when Mike Grell came on around issue 50. I don't I think I stayed for a few issues, and then I just didn't really enjoy it anymore. And then it was disassembled, and I didn't really like what was going on there. And, you know, and... Fast forward a few years, then the character has a huge seismic shift when Matt Fraction starts writing it, but really it's not Matt Fraction that caused the seismic shift. It was Robert Downey Jr. taking over the character. And ever since, uh, you know, Iron Man just feels different. Um, I'm not saying it's bad, it's just not necessarily the Iron Man I fell in love with either. Um, it feels like people trying to do Robert Downey Jr. and not always succeeding, because that's a, that's a hard tone to pull off in, in a comic. Anyways, I'm getting way afield, but, uh, so I was, you know, at this Shopper's Drug Mart and I started reading Daredevil, and really loving the issues. And they, to go back, like, they were really so different from anything else I was used to seeing at that point, because I'm trying to remember, like, what I would have been buying, uh, when... Daredevil, you know, out kind of happened. Um, or sorry, Underboss, I should say. And, you know, I was buying, you know, a lot of X-Men, Spider-Man, like very traditional stuff. And then you get something like this, which tonally is so different. Um, it felt, uh, Alex Malev, I don't know if I'd ever really seen his art anywhere. Again, I hadn't really read a lot of kind of Batman stuff, which I think where he'd started uh, and had more of a presence on. So, like, this was very different for me. Um, I, I, I still, when I look at it, it's something else. It, it feels so, again, it, tonally, it's so different than anything else, that, especially was the, at the time. Like, even look at where the Daredevil book had been in the couple years preceding this, and it was very different. I mean, Quesada has an extremely different visual style. David Mack, obviously, is very different. Um, you know, and you had actually Bendis writing his first story on Daredevil, uh, which I wouldn't read until, you know, a couple years later when it was in trade paperback. But really, it was just Underboss that really kind of grabbed me and said, you must read this. You must love this. Um, just actually looking back here. Uh, Underboss Part 1 was uh, December 2001. So I would have been just turned 18. And again, I was in uh, I was in grade 13, uh, working at Shoppers Drug Mart, and falling in love with this comic. Um, and again, going like I was, I was just kind of uh, looking at my... Uh, my what's it called? My bookcase and kind of you know, what do I want to talk about today? It kind of jumps out at me and I and I realized I hadn't really talked about Daredevil much on the podcast. I you know he's one of my favorite characters and I really haven't talked about him much. I, I know I've done a top five Daredevil uh, stories at one point. Um, I know that I did um, Batman Jack Murdoch kind of flashback, but I hadn't. I don't think I've ever really talked about how much I loved um, how Bendis kind of came aboard and really shook up the book and visually. Like again, yeah, a lot of this has to be taken in context because you know when I read Brian Michael Bendis doing this, I guess I'd, I'd already experienced him on Ultimate Spider-Man, um, so I knew he was wordy. But this is him. I hadn't experienced any of his. You know, own works, his great own works, any of his, you know, his very hard boiled kind of crime stuff. I hadn't experienced or been exposed to that version of Brian Michael Bendis. So this was very new. So again, like, I'm, I maybe sound like a naive, dumb 18 year old, and I was, uh, but I hadn't really experienced anything like this. So you read, I, you know, spoilers obviously for people who haven't read this magnificent run on Daredevil, but, um, you know, just even the way the, like, again, the artwork was so gorgeous. The way the characters looked, it felt realistic. Uh, there was real weight to it. You know, you start with the first few pages of that first issue, issue 26, you know, and, and it's this guy, you know, talking t- to the kingpin and really kind of having a lot of audacity. And then just the idea of, you know, this guy is making his play. Um, and, again, reading this as a kid, I, it was so different, different than anything I'd ever seen. 
Um, and then, because again, I'd read Frank Miller's um, Kingpin, and that Kingpin, you know, was a very different guy, but like, you don't mess with him. And here I'm like, okay, Kingpin's blind. What the hell happened there? I don't know what's going on there. He gets stabbed basically to death and left. You know, he looks, one thing about Milev is that, you know, he's not necessarily cartoony. He's pretty, you know, there's a strong sense of realism. So as a result, Kingpin doesn't look like the larger than life crazy. Well, definitely not the crazy versions from uh, in, into the Spider Verse that we got, uh, which was very much uh, Mazzucchelli. Not Mazzucchelli. Um, oh, what's his name? Oh, it's going to Sinkovich. Uh, that's kind of style. This giant blocky man. But even you know Mazzucchelli and uh, Frank Miller's versions of Kingpin were again still larger than life. This big, you know, imposing guy. And here he almost looks too small. But it, but it works for the story. And it's very much this whole introductory storyline very much plays with, uh, you know, sent, uh, your, your, your sense of time. You know, you have this gutting and then you go to, you know, to a week ago. And uh, I remember being like, you know, really enjoying it. Now, looking back on it, I feel like Malev didn't quite get the full handle on Murdoch and what he was going to look like till a little bit later. Um, but that first issue, like you have – this amazing gut punch of the, you know someone taking out the kingpin and really gutting him. Then you have this cool you know one week uh, one week ago flashback, and you see Daredevil you know Matt Murdock trying a case. Then there's this courthouse bombing, and uh, Daredevil's just kind of going a little bit crazy because he can't even concentrate because of his senses going into overload. That's the first issue. You know you're really pushing the character. You're wondering what's going on. Why is this all happening? Uh, you have the and, the and when you go to the next issue again the same thing you have you start off with seeing you know Kingpin on the on the floor gutted as a as a reminder and then you have so much dialogue from it's supposed to be a, a week ago and you got these two cops talking um, and then they basically see what what you know where did we left off Daredevil before and um, this rookie like shoots at Daredevil and Daredevil kind of takes off and again this is so cool to kind of go back and revisit because, you know, it feels very gritty. It feels, you know, very different stylistically and and visually than most other Daredevil books you'd ever read. Uh, Again, they're playing with time. You, you aren't really sure what it, what it means or how it gets to certain points. You get the idea, you see Sammy Silk first kind of getting introduced and uh, mouthing his mouth, you know, mouthing his mouth off at Daredevil. Um, You're, you're going to three months ago. So like you're, it's really playing off very much like a crime movie. Um, you know, not a straightforward, you know, adventure. Instead, you have all these different things going on. Like even at the end of issue twenty-seven, like you have uh, Ben Urich answers the uh, the phone. He finds out that Kingpin's dead. Like again, it it feels like a well-paced uh, book or or a television show that really is all about you know this amazing crime story. Uh, and in the middle of it, and again, I almost forget about this type of stuff. But in the middle of it, you have enough said issue where there's literally supposed to be no real um traditional you know world world dialogue balloons or anything like that uh ben is kind of has a cheat here where um daredevil gets a letter and so he's reading the letter but there's no actual dialogue uh as basically that there's a contract on him and uh you know he has to try not to die as Electra says and you even have this phenomenal series of this you know just silent wordless shots of uh daredevil you know thinking about uh, all the death in his life, having lost, uh, you know, Karen, uh, having lost all these people to Bullseye, having lost Elektra, uh, knowing that someone's coming for him, and he goes to, you know, go, you know, fight this, 
these assassins that have come to get him uh, as Daredevil. And then uh, one of those great things that you see and then doesn't end up going anywhere is uh, you see uh, the silhouette of, of Bullseye. But again, Daredevil's just kind of looking around. It works so well. It it does feel a little weird to get to it because obviously enough said for those who weren't around in, I guess, late 2001, early 2002, is that you had a whole month where it was only, uh, only going to be the art and there was no di- written dialogue in the comics. It was very much a stunt, obviously pulling off the, the classic Nuff said uh, rejoinder that Stanley would have. But uh, going back to it, it works here because of the strong storytelling by Alex Malev. It wouldn't work if you didn't have an amazing artist really being able to figure out how we make this intimate, quick story happen without having any dialogue at all. Especially in a book that up until that point was so dialogue heavy, you probably couldn't even imagine stripping away everything that Bendis was doing. Uh, issue 29, I remember this one very clearly because this is, again, I didn't, eventually these issues did get sold at the drugstore, but some of them lingered a little longer and I would read them more. And I always loved Vanessa returning to the book. And that's what we get in this particular issue, uh, which is in issue 29. Um, you know, the idea that Vanessa finds out that he, you don't even get to see her find out that he's been, that he's dead. Uh, you just, her get her getting, you know, approached by Johan and he says, there's, there's word from America, your husband, he, and then you just have this great wordless shot of her just looking in belief and disbelief and, and shock or who, whatever you want to believe that that face is, is saying. And then you have all these different backgrounds changing as you see her about to get on a plane, being on a plane and now being back in New York um, and find, and seeing his body and saying he's not actually dead, but he was, he's been gutted. And it's just the idea of her, her saying like, who did this to my husband? And this is where you still, you got to see kind of the shift of, uh, Vanessa Fisk being more than just what she'd always been portrayed as being as someone who kind of wanted Wilson to get out of crime and didn't really support the lifestyle. And here she's like, you know, you don't fuck with my husband. And if you do fuck with my husband, bad shit's going to happen. Um, you once again, back, go back to three months ago and you have this idea that again, you you can't mess around and Silk wants, you know, Murdoch to be taken care of and Kingpin's like, no, Murdoch is not to be touched. And everyone's very dismissive and he's just like, what the hell's going on here? You know, Sammy Silk's like, my father, who's supposed to be like this big guy from Chicago, he's asking you a favor and Kingpin's just like, you know, fuck off. Like, this isn't happening. And again, then we, we go back a couple days ago before uh, the gutting and you have Daredevil again trying to find out who's put this uh, this hit on him and finds out that Kingpin put a price tag on Matt Murdock. So you have Kingpin going to visit Wilson and it's such a beautiful scene. It's, it's so dark and you have this idea that Daredevil's there and he's confronting Kingpin again. Kingpin can't see. He's in the weakest point he's ever been because he's blind and he's just saying, you know, he actually considered him an honorable man. Uh, Fisk just says, I, I didn't know you were there and it's this great shot of Daredevil. It's Really, just the eyes, a little tip of the horns, and the DD is in red, and everything else is just like not even a silhouette, it's just darkness. And he just says, Welcome to the world of the blind. And they just have this conversation. It's like, I, you know, you told me you didn't have a bounty on my head, now I find out you do. And you have Fisk come to this realization that someone is going against his wishes, that maybe he's not in control. And that's crazy for someone like, you know, like uh, Wilson Fisk. And the idea here, like, Daredevil leaves. And and it's almost sad that you have Kingpin just saying maybe maybe we can help each other once again. Hello, like this is a, it, it's so interesting to read because 
the Kingpin is such a larger-than-life character in all these Daredevil comics, and he's always been such a formidable force, and yet this is a very brief window. It doesn't last long, where he's literally, like, he's the most powerless he's ever been uh, because of being blinded, being shot in the face by Echo, which, again, at the time I read this, had no fucking context for this. And this is one of those things where I, when people say, well, I don't know if you can buy, get into comics sometimes because it can be confusing. Yeah, a little bit, I guess. But if you want to read it and want to try and understand it, you'll let those things go by and say, oh, okay, well, he's blind. Okay, I get that. Um, I don't know how he got blind because, again, I knew the character already. But, you know, something happened. Who cares? You can kind of, you know, make it up in your own head. And, again, you have this whole idea that Sammy Silk is, you know, trying to figure out why people can't go over uh, – can't get – do anything against Matt Murdock. And everyone's like, drop it, drop it, don't talk to him. And then, finally, someone says to go have a drink with him, and it's uh, Richard Fisk. Now, going back to this, I mean, I knew Richard Fisk at the time as being the Rose. And this is a weird version of Richard Fisk, probably like the loserish version of him. Like he was not Blood Rose here. He's really not anyone who is any kind of anything. He's very weak. But it's interesting, again, to go back and, and read this. And so, he, again, at the end of issue 29, you have Vanessa f- trying to find out more about what's going on. They want to move him. And uh, she's like, the, the men who did this, there's my son among them. And she, and again, they're just trying to be like, well, Vanessa. And he's like, my son. Which, again, is fucked up. And then issue 30... Uh, again, you have Matt and uh, Yurik talking about what's going on and how something you know something must have happened to, to Kingpin. Does it actually mean he's dead? What happened to the body? You have Silk being told by Richard Fisk, and this is a big deal. That the idea that Wilson Fisk knew this thing about Daredevil, and we always kind of believed that no one else knew it, but really we start to find out that actually some more people found out, and Richard is one of them. And so he tells Sammy Silk that Matt Murdock is Daredevil, and you know you got this idea that maybe there should be some kind of, you know, coup against, against, uh, you know, his father and, uh, they should figure this out. And you also have these flashbacks to, you know, the history between these families and what to do. And you have all these guys deciding they're going to get together and they're going to take out the kingpin, which is pretty crazy. And, uh, you know, they're going to take out their own personal Caesar. And, um, again, such, such a great read. And, you know, you have you see how they ended up deciding to put a hit on and Matt Murdock, saying that it came from Kingpin. You also have Kingpin's body being uh, put on a you know a plane, taken off, and Vanessa Fisk basically saying like, "I'm going to deal with this." Brings you up to issue 31, and you have everyone celebrating that the Kingpin is dead. You know, Salu, uh, the Kingpin's a dead man, and you know they've done such a good job. Richard Fisk is you know pretty fucking loaded, and they're all so excited about you know they've taken him out, they've they've succeeded. You have you know, people dying and you have Daredevil finding this guy dead at this, uh, this billiards club and realizing that the gun that was used in the, and the smells he smells, he realizes that Vanessa Fisk has been there. And then you have this great moment of Vanessa Fisk in the dark as a, as a, you know, a door opens, a lights turned on and she confronts Richard Fisk and basically was, you know, confronting him about what's happened and the fact that, you know, he was part of the, you know, the attempt to kill him, which is pretty crazy. And you just have this, and then she kind of pulls the gun and she just comes out and says, you know, okay, do it. All of them. And everyone involved in the death of Kingpin is, is brutally murdered, which is a great, you know, series of sequences. And then Silk is one of the kind of the last ones. He's got shot. This girl he's with gets shot. Um, he barely is able to escape with his life and he's trying to figure out what to do. He calls his dad. His dad is like, you know, you know, you're, not talking to him and hangs up on him. You have Vanessa kind of sitting down at her husband's desk. So you have Silk has survived, goes to the FBI, wants to come in from the cold, wants protection. 
And they're like, you know, basically not give us something on your dad or we're not going to bother with you. And at the very end, and it's, again, it's such a great cliffhanger, especially if you're breeding this in trade, it's a great cliffhanger. Well, not the ultimate collections because it's just in the middle. But the original trade is ended with Silk just telling the FBI that uh, Matt Murdock is actually Daredevil. And then you – one of my favorite issues – and I might not even talk about the rest of this volume because, I mean, it's all good. But issue 32 is always going to be a very – one of my favorite volumes. It's all it's all told at the FBI. you got the FBI director comes down. He's like, you know, what's going on? They tell him that Sammy Silk has been – you know, turn, has turned himself in, and they're like, okay, there's been some developments. And they have this great shot of kind of a, a board where you have, you know, everyone who's kind of related to each other in the fam- crime families, and they're kind of going to use this as a as an evidence board. And they're kind of pointing at everyone, and the director's trying to be like, okay, go back, what's going on? And Silk says, you know, I, these guys who've all now been found dead or, are the ones who took out the kingpin. It's like, okay, what's going on? Who authorized this? They find out that one of the people involved was Kingpin's own son. And you have the director being like, huh, pretty damn Shakespearean. And then they try to mention that the Daredevil information. But before they can, they have like a new thing has happened. And they can scratch out the fact that now Richard Fisk is dead. And they think that a woman did it. And they think that it's Vanessa Fisk. So everyone's kind of going crazy. And it's like the director's just trying to kind of again reading it is so cool because it's very much like a crime procedural like you're trying to connect the dots we know the dots but seeing them come up with the dots is pretty cool the idea that they're trying to figure out that you know Vanessa Fisk is the one who came back to town killed Richard Fisk as avenging her husband's death or potential death or at least um and then finally revealing that you know he offered us something in exchange for Silk offered something in exchange for protection, and the director's like, "What? His father?" He's like, "No." And they just have this. They put the two pictures of Daredevil next to each other, or Daredevil and Matt Murdock. And they're saying, "This is this is him." Everyone knows that inside Fisk's camp, that Matt Murdock is actually Daredevil. And again, you, you have the natural reaction is that the director's like, "Well, that's ridiculous." You know, like that. Th- there's no way that can be. And so, which again, and I, I love it because again, it's it's taking the crazy world of superheroes and try to. You know, I have an idea of realism. So they're basically saying, you know, this courthouse bombing was originally supposed to go against Murdoch. And then after Murdoch, you know, was was not killed there, Daredevil spotted uh, every attempt that was made on Matt Murdoch's life, taking out everyone. And then Murdoch was apparently in hiding, but that he never went to the police. And they're like, well, that's the thing. Matt Murdoch's FBI file has been classified 2-7, which ends up being a S.H.I.E.L.D. file. So they're like, why would S.H.I.E.L.D. have the file? And they're like, I don't know. So the the director starts shading in the picture of Matt Murdock to make it look like Daredevil. He's like, keep talking, paint a picture. And it's like, uh, so they keep telling him more stuff. And it's so cool, again, to read it because you're like, well, once anyone would put together all these dots, Matt Murdock has never been that careful about his identity. So they're like, well, we know his father was a middleweight boxer named Batlin Jack Murdock. Like, well, that doesn't mean anything. His father was killed by a Goomba called the Fixer. And then they find out that Murdoch was blinded in a traffic accident. He was hit with a radioactive isotope and started complaining about smells and noises that weren't there. And then suddenly he soon stopped complaining. And they're like, well, what's your point? And he's like, well, we think it might have given him superpowers. And then they're like, okay, uh, Daredevil has been in Matt Murdoch's business in a lot of ways. And, um, anyways, they're just kind of mentioning everything about this. And they even say maybe that there was some sort of people chess that Fisk was doing. And then they're like, listen to this a couple years ago. Murdoch's assets were frozen and his legal practice was brought into serious investigation, all of which was then soon, soon dropped. And they're like, well, was this Fisk testing the information? And then they mentioned Electra. And she's like, this was Kingpin's chief assassin. And they're like, yeah, I remember her. And then he's like, well, she was Murdoch's girlfriend in college. And the guy's like, what? 
And the night she died at the hand of Bullseye, he's like, yeah, it was in a pool of blood and a Murdoch's doorstep. So everyone's kind of figuring out, well, maybe this isn't so crazy. Maybe this is real. And so the director basically, be, you know, put this on my desk. Don't do anything about this. It's probably going to end up being shield business. If this guy's not going to give us anything that's not his father, we're not going to do anything. And they're like, well, I want to leave Murdoch alone. The information stays in this room. And you had this great shot at the end of that panel. We have one of the agents that just kind of looks at him. And then the next day, you see Foggy Nelson picking up a newspaper, and he sees on it, Globe exclusive, Paul Piro of Hell's Kitchen is blind lawyer. And just the look on his face, he's like, oh, shit. That's how you start a storyline. Um, now, the collection I'm particularly reading from today, which is the Daredevil, The Man Without Fear, Bendis Malev, uh, Ultimate Collection, Book One. Uh, it collects issues, let's see, 16 to 19 and 26 to 40. So, I mean, we're basically up to issue only like 32 or so, and I did, or 33, I should say. We didn't really talk about uh, the first couple. Um, I'm not going to go in-depth on the rest, but um, I love this entire storyline. I mean, again... The next few issues are, are nothing short of amazing. I mean, but uh, there's just something to me about that one issue, which is all about the FBI, where it's not really a Daredevil issue at all. Um, and it's really just people talking about things that the reader, generally speaking, already knows. But it's just so well done, so well paced, and you really feel like, you know, oh shit, all these pieces are coming together. What the hell is going to happen to Matt? And then, like, the next. The next issue has, again, one of my favorite shots where you have the idea that Matt is about to, to wake up from, from being uh, asleep, finally wakes up, and then just the, the shot where he says, I know my life is over. And you know the fact that everyone kind of knows who he is and everyone's camped on his doorstep trying to find out if he is actually that person, we get to see which FBI agent ends up kind of deciding to uh, release the information or end up you know, kind of figuring out if, if he can sell the story to make some money. Um, and it kind of goes from there. I mean, there's some great stuff. There's an issue where you have J. Jonah Jameson being pissed off that no one else, you know, figured this out before. And Brian, uh, Ben York basically saying, you know, that it's not true. And he's like, I know who Daredevil is. And he's like, I know who it is. I'm not telling you. And then you have Peter Parker there and they're both like, I'm not going to tell you. Um, there's no way. And the fact that, you know, it's interesting because when they realize that they both know, who Daredevil is, and they both have this weird kind of clandestine conversation about it. And then you have this whole shot where Foggy Nelson is trying to tell him that maybe he should retire, and you have these gorgeous splash pages of Daredevil going through the, you know, the wet of the city and, and trying to work things out as you have these inset conversations of Matt talking to Foggy, and Foggy being like, you can't be Daredevil, you can't do this. And you know, all, basically the idea that you know maybe he, he's been crazy for a while, things are being crazy, don't, don't go to the cycle of pain, don't become Daredevil, and you have Daredevil kind of climbing towards everything and just trying to figure out what to do. And again, all these people are on his doorstep. And it leads into, again, one of my favorite things about issue 35. Uh, you have Daredevil high above. He's on like a lamppost above these, the, all these media. He just says, I'm not afraid of you. And in, in brackets, I'm not afraid of jail. I'm not afraid of you brackets i'm not afraid for my life and he just says i'm not afraid of you he takes off his mask just says i'm not afraid of you i'm the man without fear and then quickly realizing you know look at he's like look up here i'm not afraid of you you will hear me and then he's like oh shit what am i doing covers up his like his his mask and again he's just trying to figure out what's going on he's also you know trying to you know do the good thing be a hero uh, mr hyde attacks uh 
attacks his apartment and you have him, him and the Spider-Man have a team up against it. And it's just so interesting. And then it flashes 26 days later that basically Matt's gone to ground and he's decided he's, he's going to do something. He's going to have this press conference and he's basically tells Ben that, you know, they can't really be, you know, talking anymore. He can't be his confidant, but he appreciates everything he's done. And it leads up to this great kind of ending issue where he's like, everyone asks, is he really Daredevil? And he's having this press conference on the, on the steps of his building. And then you just go, there's no ending. You go to issue 36 and you have him basically flat out deny that he was ever Daredevil, which again is, is you know, it's kind of the way it had to be at that time. You have uh, like some great stuff that gets reflected in an alias comic at the same time where you have this blonde goes to visit him, but it's not really a real blonde. It's actually um, Black Widow. And she's like, you know, come with me. Uh, you know, let's go have an adventure uh, because he's, you know, he's really having an issue here. You have this great sequence that Milev just expertly illustrates where uh, Matt Murdock actually has, sits down to a dinner with Vanessa Fisk. And the fact that, you know, she's like, I'm, I'm leaving. I, I sold off the businesses and everything. And uh, they just have this crazy meal where Daredevil knows that, you know, Vanessa killed her, her son and they're not really talking about it. And at the same time, you, at this point, you have uh, Luke Cage being, you know, the um, Luke Cage and Jessica Jones are operating a security for Matt Murdock. And it leads up to the end of this issue where he knows that he shouldn't be climbing on the fire escapes, but there she is. There's Elektra. Uh, this is the only reason why I wanted to go this far is to talk about issue 37, which, again, is about Elektra goes to visit uh, um, uh, Matt. And the way that she's written here is like she's kind of emotionless or relatively little in emotion. And the idea that, you know, she, Natasha called her and says that, you know, she needed that maybe Matt needed to speak to her. So she goes to talk to him and you have these great flashbacks of him in the past and then them being in this bed and now everyone wanting to leave. And Matt just kind of like dumps it all out of his life. And he, he it's interesting because he, he starts, you know, just having this major confession to Electra and you have the internal narration being like, be quiet, stop embarrassing yourself. She's not your friend. Why won't you shut up? She's not your priest. And at the very end, you know, he, he, she decides to leave and he goes, don't do it. Don't embarrass yourself again. Let it go. Hold it in. Stick with laugh at you. Don't you do it. And before she leaves, she just says, sometimes I don't, his internal narration says, I still wish we never left that room. And he just says, and you did it. It just leaves. And again, I don't know why that just kind of gets me each time, but like he's, he's going through such a traumatic event and yet you know, this, this woman comes back to him and all I can think about is, you know, how, what they used to have and wishing that they never left that room. And uh, it's really something. And, uh, yeah, at the end of the issue, you have Daredevil confronting the man who sold out his identity. And then he, you know, confronts the, uh, the daily globe and says he wants 200 million on a front page, uh, written apology. And basically they end up, he really pushes his luck too far. And then the publisher of the, um, this paper basically says that I'm going to come for you. I'm going to take everything and let's see what's out there. And, uh, that's, you know, kind of the end of the out storyline. The next one is called the trial of the century, which is very interesting and very riveting. It's a courtroom drama with Matt Murdock and expertly told and has a very tragic ending. Uh, but you know, it's a different artist. It's not Alex Malevin. It's a very a different feel. Uh, it doesn't mean it's not great because it is, but it's just a, a different type of thing. But, um, I, anyways, this has been, you know, my little flashback to this. Again, I, was reading it. I was buying all the singles from out onwards. Um, it just it really impacted me and made me like really fall in love with Brian Michael Bendis. I have had my ups and downs with his writing over the years, but uh, to me, there's just something so 
perfect about his Daredevil in a way that I actually like more than his Ultimate Spider-Man. Um, his Ultimate Spider-Man was great, and but uh, his Daredevil was really something different. And him and Malev were just such an amazing team. And uh, maybe at some point in the future, I'll, I'll talk about kind of what comes next and uh, the other stories that come after this. But uh, no, this this was a, a nice a flashback for me to be able to go back to when I was what eighteen years old. So and and really starting to you know get into in love with modern Daredevil because I'd read classic Daredevil. I'd read you know Frank Miller and I'd read I guess Last Rites at some point and. And maybe Man Without Fear at this point, but you know, I had—I don't know if I'd even read Guardian Devil. I think I kind of read this, and then I bought all those trades. I had the Guardian Devil trade, and the Parts of a Whole trade, and the Wake Up trade, and then uh, for years, I, I still don't have it because I. Just I don't like the branding of it, but they finally do have issues. What nineteen to twenty five are finally in trade, which was uh, written by Bob Gale and a few other people. Uh, but I always felt like they probably didn't need to read it, um, as opposed to everything else that was kind of going on at that time. And then from Bendis onwards, I knew everything that happened to Daredevil, and uh, this was kind of the beginning of me really following Daredevil regularly and not just kind of reading older issues. Anyways, thank you for listening to this uh, this uh, you know, rambly episode. This has been episode 680 of Comic Shenanigans. I have been your host, Adam Chapman. You can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, the show has been in a bit of a, a weird schedule lately. I'm trying to get it back on track. Uh, so there might be a few episodes coming out in the next couple of days. There might be an episode today, tomorrow, maybe the next day, maybe the day after that. And I think we'll almost be current by then. Um, so one of these days, uh, this show will finally be back on track. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.